Good morning. If you're new here, my name is Tim, and uh, I'm the lead pastor, and it really is an honor to worship with you. Before we get into today's message, I want to take a minute and um, talk about Rethink Small and, and take a minute to pray. So I shared with the team of volunteers who were in training yesterday why we're doing this conference. And it really, for me, begins with my brother Josh. I have two brothers, one who is three years younger than me, who uh, lives and works in Raleigh, and we get to see them on a regular basis. Um, And then Josh, who's five years younger than I am. And I haven't seen Josh for more than about 30 seconds in 11 years. Josh was at one time um, at school, I went to the same college I went to, planning to be a missionary, stopped going to college, started working, took down a path, and then disconnected from the family without explanation. And I've often prayed that there would be a church, a people, someone that could reach and speak to Josh with a heart of love and compassion right where he's at. And I think that many of us have Josh's in our lives. We have those people we love and care about who live somewhere else. And I have believed that the small church is perfectly designed to reach and make disciples and develop leaders out of people like Josh. To give community where where family is lacking. To give hope where it's lacking. But we as a small church are are committed to to this community. Committed to Southeast Goldsboro and Goldsboro. And over the, the last six years, we've seen over 100 people baptized. We've seen hundreds of people as a part of leadership development and life groups. And we've seen hundreds sent out through the military, to share the story and rhythms of life they've discovered in this place. But I I can't go plant a church in Raleigh or in Asheboro or Wilmington or Indiana or Michigan or Kansas or South Carolina because I'm called here. And we prayed and thought about the ways that we could help to reach the people like Josh all around. And Rethink Small was our answer to that question. And so as of right now, there are 16 seats left in this conference. And there are about 40 churches that will be represented here um, on that weekend. 40 small churches from all around our country, all around North Carolina, who will gather in this place for inspiration and encouragement and tools and equipping to reach the Joshes of their community, to raise up disciples of the next generation. See, in small churches, you can do remarkable things. You can see dozens and dozens of kids every week falling in love with God and his story and his church in a way that lasts with them. You can, you can see dozens of students, middle school and high school students. You can see what we've seen in about a half dozen students called into vocational ministry. That's another six churches that will be started or impacted because of this small church. You can see adults and families transform, marriages saved, 
You can see impact and transformation in the small church. And we want to equip and give the tools for that to happen over and over again. Instead of seeing our, the small churches around us become a statistic, one of the three to 6,000 churches that close in America every single year, we want to see them become healthy and vibrant and making a difference in the lives the way that Hydrant has made a difference in our lives. And so that's why we put the time and the energy and the money into Rethink Small, because it's our mission we're not just called to Goldsboro. When Jesus gave the commission, gave the assignment to his disciples, he said, go into your community, go into your enemy's community, and go into all the world. We are called to go beyond just Goldsboro and make a difference. And this is how we can do it together. And so I'm excited about it. I believe in it. And I'm so thankful for all those who have been working for so long to help us get ready and make this a reality. So we're going to take just a moment and pray before we uh, jump into today's message. Father, I'm in awe of you and I'm in awe of what you do in lives. I'm in awe of your power to transform us from the inside out and set us free to be who we were created to be. I'm in awe of the courage that you have given individuals. I'm in awe of the generosity you have inspired. I'm in awe of the transformation in children and teenagers. I'm in awe of the way that the next generation fuels the mission in this place, serving throughout the mission and ministry of Hydrant. God, I believe that there is more to be done. There are people you love in communities all around that our small churches are perfectly equipped to reach and we're just hiding afraid whining complaining about what we feel like you haven't given us and failing to see what you have so would you help us to just hold up a mirror so that so that those who come into this place will see themselves and see their churches as you see them that you will inspire and encourage and equip people to do the work you're calling them to do. Use us, but make us disappear in the midst of it. And may your name be lifted up and your mission lifted up and your purpose lifted up. And we pray that the right people will be in the room, the people that you want in the room, the people who will hear and respond. Pray for those last 16 seats. God, will you put the right butts in those seats? God, we trust you. We give it to you. It's not for us or our name or anything to do with Hydrant, but about you and the mission you've called your people to. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're in this, this series of messages called Misfits, and it's, it's connecting our daily lives to this reality that followers of Jesus rarely fit in the world. In fact, he told us that the world may hate us because they've hated him. We, we kind of take this reversal track, this alternative track to the way the world pursues life. We talked uh, last week a little bit about the created order, going back to that poem in Genesis 1 and this picture of this temple, this garden temple where the, the realm of heaven and the realm of earth collided and came together and that we were given rhythms of life that begin with rest 
that begin and include the, the rest of night and then day and work as a part of what we were created for, connection with God and one another, and then this rhythm of weekly rest. But we didn't like the order that God gives us so much. And really the poem, as much as it's about what happened, it's about what happens, right? We as human beings reject the order and pattern that God gives us for life, every one of us. In some subtle and some not so subtle ways, we take on new patterns and reject God's pattern. And we do the same thing that the, the humans from the garden did. And we, we pursue things out of lust and greed and we use violence to get what we want and pursue the things that we think will make us happy in pride Make life about us, about our success and happiness. And, and having been kicked out of this garden, this temple, this connecting place, God said that he would send a human who would get it right and restore humanity. That would crush the head of the serpent that tempted and pointed out this alternative to God. We thought that Israel was going to be this new humanity as you read through scripture. That they were going to be the ones who get it right, but they fall to the same violence. They fall to the same pride. They fall to the same greed. They fall to the same lust. And God promises again, he's going to send one. One who will be the king and the priest that shows the way to live out our humanity. That shows us a new pattern. And he gave us things like the law to help us figure out what this life is supposed to look like. And then he sends us Jesus who initiates this whole new way of being in the world. But we get stuck. We get stuck in our pursuit. We pursue, we said that we pursue success and happiness at all costs. We pursue success and happiness. We pursue what we think will make us happy. And we sacrifice everything in the pursuit of this success and happiness. We sacrifice our, our relationships. We sacrifice community. We sacrifice marriages that just don't make me happy anymore as if that was what the purpose of marriage was. We sacrifice friendships that don't make us happy. We sacrifice being a part of the community that pushes us toward God and who we were created to be because they just don't make us happy. We'll sacrifice anything for success and happiness. We often see our world sacrifice even its character and integrity in pursuit of success. And it's usually in small ways to start with, little bit by bit by bit. Well, I'll never do that. But, you know, this little lie, this, this little deception, this little wrong action, this little cheat, that's not that big of a deal. And we'll sacrifice our character bit by bit until one day we wake up and we're the kind of person we never thought we'd be. And then we even, we even sacrifice our, our soul, our connection to God. In pursuit of success and happiness. You know, being committed to things like worship and prayer and, and being in the Word. Being committed to, to loving people the way that Jesus called us to love. Being committed to the mission of Jesus is hard. 
And it, and, and it gets in the way of the success I want, and it gets in the way of the, the happiness I think I want. You, you do understand, right? Like those early Jesus followers, they didn't follow Jesus because of what he taught and what he expected him to do. They followed Jesus in spite of what he taught and expected them to do. It was the reverse of so many things, but they had found a new pattern. It's why Paul warns us in Romans chapter 12, don't conform to the pattern of this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. We said last week that that as Christians, we follow a different pattern. While the world pursues success and happiness, sacrificing all of these, usually in your 20s and 30s and maybe even into your 40s, that one day we kind of wake up and say all the success and happiness we have really doesn't mean much without people. And we go back and we try to learn how to value people, to, to build relationships. The problem is that we sacrificed our character, our trustworthiness, and it takes so long to get that back. We realize having pursued relationships, maybe two or three marriages in our 40s and 50s, that in our 60s we realize, man, I'm never going to have the relationships I want until I deal with what's in me. We start to pursue character again, start to learn to tell the truth, to value people, to be the same person all the time, to be able to look in the mirror and not lower our eyes. But in the pursuit of character, we realize that I don't have it in me to fix myself. I don't have it in me to transform the broken pieces of my life. I need a connection to something more true, more stable, more powerful than what's in me. And often people in their 70s come back around and say, man, I think there may be a God after all. But as Christians, as misfits in the world, we reverse it and we realize that everything begins in a connection with God, that our very life, our very source, it's kind of like that wonderful iPhone you have. It can do a lot of things. You can do a lot of things like that iPhone. But if that iPhone doesn't get charged up, it's useless. If it doesn't get plugged in, if it doesn't get connected, it's useless. We need that connection to God. If we're going to be what we were created to be, if we're going to be able to do the things we were created to do, to do the things that we were designed and built and equipped to do, it begins in a connection with God that fuels our character, right? Like the truth is that God, we come to God, we get this, start to get this connection, we're like, God, okay, we're good. Like, I need you to fix this situation, right? I need you to fix my job. We're kind of halfway joking, and someone um, said amen at the wrong time last week, but we said, God, we, we come to God, and we, like, we want him to fix our marriage, and then we want him to fix our kids because, you know, they've got a little too much of our spouse in them. Don't say amen there. And we want him to fix all these things in our life, and he says, well, we'll get to that, but let's start with you. Let's, let's deal with that, the, that thought pattern. Let's deal with that worry, that fear. Let's deal with that. Let's deal with that baggage you've been carrying. Let's deal with this brokenness. Let's deal with the way that you're hurting the people around you. Let's deal with this pride, this greed, this lust. Let's deal with these things. Let's deal with the, the violence and the anger and the hatred. In you. Let's deal with those. And he starts to shape our character, which then makes us ready to value people. To value people. Nothing changes. Like, if you think about the success and the happiness that we have in life, the, the opportunities that have led to that, every one of them came from another person. 
The more we value people, the more connections we have, the more community that we put ourselves within, the better opportunities we have to to fulfill the purpose and do the things that we were created to do. But it all begins in this connection with God that shapes our character, puts us in community, and then here. And really, we find the significance and joy in life when we give it all back to God. And this is kind of this quick recap of the pattern that we follow last week. And over the next couple of weeks, what I want to do is, is kind of break apart something you can't really break apart. And I want to talk about the, the sections of our lives. And maybe the, we're going to talk today about our spiritual life. And next week, talk about our, our physical care. And then our, in the, the last, series, last message of the series, we'll talk about our emotions. And the truth is, those all work together. If your emotional health is out of whack, your physical health will be too, and your spiritual life as well. They're all tied together. I can't compartmentalize those, but for the sake of being able to not preach for four hours, we're going to break them apart a little bit and talk about what these really can look like, because we're called to this misfit pattern of life, a whole different way of being, and it even connects to the spiritual life. So if you think about spirituality in our world, the first thing they do is compartmentalize it. The first thing our world tries to do is to tell you that your spiritual life belongs in this little box that you only talk about at home if you talk about it at all. It shouldn't affect the way you do anything else. It shouldn't affect your business. It shouldn't affect your, your relationships. It shouldn't affect anything. It's just got it's just this little thing. And really, it's about what you believe. We, we, we have... We have minimized spirituality to things that you believe, things that you think with your mind and maybe hold in your heart. And it's about, do you believe the right things? And what that's created then in our culture, in our world, is this approach to spirituality that's a smorgasbord, right? Like you, you get all of these religions and faiths and spiritual ideas out there and everyone kind of walks around picking and choosing what works for them. What they like. I, well, I kind of like this teaching of Jesus, and I like this one of Judaism, and I really like kind of some of the, the meditation in, in Hinduism, and you know, I really like this in, in, in Islam. I really like this over here, and, and, and we just kind of pull it, try to pull it all together. And this is how I connect with the universe. This is how I connect with God. This is how I do it. Then it's about me. It's about me. Really, we make spirituality about just me. And it leaks into the church. And we think that spirituality is about me and Jesus. And we compartmentalize it too. We compartmentalize it so much we can write off anything we want to write off. Not only do we compartmentalize it, like we use it in the church to create divisions and lines. We make it about whether or not you believe the right things. And having believed the right things determines whether you're in or whether you're out. Whether you're headed to hell or headed to heaven. Whether you're acceptable or unacceptable. And we create these divisions based on these ideas that you believe or don't believe. And we'll write off. We'll write off people like crazy, like these. We'll write off pastors who write a book 
right? And we don't agree with one little idea in the book, so we just write them off as heretics and we can't listen to them for anything anymore. We don't listen to people we disagree with and we create these divisions in the name of Jesus. And it's the most absurd thing because it's the exact opposite of what Jesus was after. In fact, I'm, I, I'm a little concerned. I think that Jesus probably would be shocked and appalled and disappointed that we turned the things that he did and preached into a religion. Another way to divide people. It's really kind of um, disturbing and worrisome. Because in Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 to 13, we hear Jesus talking. It says that he overheard some people questioning who he was eating with. You know, he's eating with the wrong people. They were on the other side of the line. There's this weird thing about Jesus. Every time we draw a line between who's in and out, we look up and Jesus is on the other side of the line from where we are. He keeps going to where the outs are, the unacceptables, the, the sinners, the broken, however you want to determine. He's there. And he hears these kind of religious people, the churchgoers saying, why is Jesus hanging out at the bar? Why is he hanging out with the prostitutes? Why is he hanging out with Democrats? Why is he hanging out with Republicans, depending on what you think? And he says, listen, who needs a doctor? The healthy or the sick? Look, go figure out what the scripture means. I'm after mercy, not religion. I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. So listen, if I ever upset or offend you with something I say from the stage... Just know I'm copying Jesus. He wasn't about coddling insiders. <laughs> Sorry. He came to erase the lines, right? He came to erase the lines between Democrat and Republican. He came to erase the lines between in and out, between right and, and wrong, as in these people are right and those people are wrong. He came to put people back together and to give us our humanity, to rescue us from the self-destructive pattern fueled by greed and violence and lust and pride, and to give us back to one another, to rescue humanity from the self-destructive, selfish patterns. And we can easily, most of us, look at our own lives because we think that's what this is about. And we, we look inside and we're like, oh, I'm not that greedy. I'm not, I don't really lust after that or anyone or anything. Or, or I'm not proud. I, I'm so humble. <laughs> if you just knew me, you'd know how humble I am. I can't even say it without laughing. And we, and we think, well, I'm, just, I'm not that way. I'm not violent. I mean, we just screamed at our kids, but I'm not violent. We talked about how much we hate that person. I'm not violent. Perhaps, like, no, no we'll just let that be right there. Um, and we can, we can think that this isn't about, hey, like, I don't fall to this pattern, right? But we all do, sometimes in subtle ways and sometimes not so subtle ways. But God has been about trying to rescue us and show us our humanity again. Give us back our humanity from the very beginning. Even the prophet Micah, 
He says in Micah 6, 8, hasn't God shown you, O mortal, what is good? Hasn't God told you? And this is just after the prophet went on this rant. Does God want you to sacrifice an animal so you can be right? Does he want you to sacrifice a thousand animals? Does he want you to sacrifice your children? And you got to understand that this comes from this history of religion where there was this understanding in the old world that the gods control it all. And you need to get on their good side so that you have children, that you have crops, you have enough to eat, that the weather doesn't take you out, all this kind of stuff. But you never quite knew whether you were on the right side or not. So you just kept escalating what you gave to God. And then we have Yahweh step in. And the book of Leviticus, which you probably have never read and I don't blame you for. But if you go into the book of Leviticus, what it's really about is a step forward in religious history. To say, here are the limits of what God expects. Here's what he wants. This is how you can know you're clean or unclean, in the right with God or in the wrong with God. It's just this simple. And it was a step forward. He knows that we can't jump all the way forward. He's got to take us in steps. And that was a step forward. And Jesus is another step forward as he says, what I really expect is that you love God and love people. But Micah, Micah is in this in-between step. And here's what he says. This is what the Lord requires of you. Act justly. Love mercy. And walk humbly. Or it could be translated wisely with your God. This is what God expects. This is this new humanity. This is what it was always all about. Work toward justice. Act justly, fairly in all that you do. Pursue justice for those who can't pursue it for themselves. Love mercy, not revenge, not retribution, not control. Love mercy, not just when you receive it, but to give it. And just walk humbly with God. Realize, realize like one professor put it, I'm right about 80% of the time. I'm wrong about 20% of the time. I just don't know which is which. And if we kind of hold this possibility at all times, like I might be wrong about this. It really helps life. We walk humbly with God, letting God be God and not trying to control the outcome of every situation and every person. Because that's what happens, right? Like, We think we're trying to control the situation, but we can't control the situation. So we just try to control the people. Make them do what we think they ought to do. And we fail to realize we may not know what they ought to do. Shoot, we don't know what we're supposed to do half the time. And he's inviting us to recover this pattern. And Jesus, he picked up the same theme. I mentioned this a minute ago. He's being questioned and he's teaching. He's talking about what it is to really live out our humanity with God. And he says, this is what it is. Love God. And here's how you love God. Love people. Do you realize how little that's about like me? Love God and here's how you do it. Love people. So it's not about my success and happiness. It begins in a connection with God that transforms me so that I can value people. 
connect with people, love people, to the point that Jesus even pushes us in the, the Sermon on the Mount that, that Dustin referenced to love our enemies and pray for those who hurt you. You want to be a misfit in the world? Pray for your enemies and love mercy. You will be misfit. Forgive when it would be easier to retaliate. So what is it that he is asking us? What is it that it looks like to be connected to God? To have a spirituality that is loving God and loving people. What is this love look like and worked out? And that's really what the rest of the New Testament is. When we look at Jesus, he did this, so do that. Love the way that he did. And it's this, this remarkable, just kind of this unpacking of what love really looks like. But for our sake today, I can't unpack the whole New Testament. So we're going to look at one point of connection. And some of the things we learned from it real quickly. It's in Matthew chapter 6, a part of that Sermon on the Mount actually. And beginning at verse 5, we find these words. Matthew chapter 6. Feel free to use your phones, use the Bibles in the chair in front of you, whatever you need to, or just listen. Jesus is teaching, and he says, now when you pray, when you connect with God, when you talk with God, when you're intimate with God, don't be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues or the churches and on the street corners to be seen by others. They want others to see how spiritual they are, how good they are, how God-like they are. And he says, truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But instead, when you pray, go, in, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard for their many words. It's a simple thing, this faith in God. Instead, he says this, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So I read that kind of slow on purpose. You probably thought I was just trying to be dramatic, but the truth is, started teaching uh, kids to pray that prayer at night as soon as they could talk. And um, when you're trying to, to say this in its entirety as a two or three year old, you get to about halfway through and you run out of breath and yawn. And as I'm saying with it, you know what happens when someone yawns? It's contagious, right? So every time I pray this prayer, I yawn halfway through. <laughs> it has nothing to do with being bored. It's, it's just that's part of our story. So I have to read it slow when I'm in public or say it, say it slow when I'm in public because I have a tendency to yawn about halfway through. If I keep talking about yawning, some of you are going to start and I'll see you and then I want to. So let's just keep going. He starts with our father and he reminds us that it's not my father, not your father, it's our father, that we as human beings are connected. We are a family. We are united that in Christ, as he says, Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor free, female. 
Do you see what he's doing? He's not just picking random divisions. He's picking the things that through history have a tendency to divide us the most. Nationality. These boundaries and barriers, right, that we call borders. It says, in Christ, those go away. In Christ, there's neither slave nor free. It's an economic thing. The poor and rich become one, together, united in Christ toward a common good. Economics are not meant to divide us anymore. And male and female, the gender divide that tends to pit us against each other. The church has always meant to raise up both genders. It's not about one or the other, or the dominance or the one or the other. And we missed it completely when we stopped allowing, not we as in the Wesleyan church or Hydrant church, but the church as a whole, stopped allowing women to lead. We failed. Jesus' first preacher of the resurrection was a woman. And idiot men thought, well, we shouldn't let them do that anymore. Probably because they were better at it than us. I don't know. But we don't have to diminish one to raise up the other. That both together are designed to be who we are created to be. It's our father. We go to him as a father Not as a God high up on a mountain that we can't reach. In fact, we have this other kind of misfit reversal in our faith. We are not on a journey up the mountain to where God is. God came down off of the mountain, came out of heaven to where we are. He walked the dirty streets. He walked this life starting as an infant and child and adolescent. I wonder what it was like for the creator of all creation to have his voice crack, right? To go through puberty. Like that would have been the, like the creator. Maybe he handled it better than the rest of us do. But he, he walked this life, became one of us. He came to us. He united with us and united us together, invites us back into our humanity, not into a religion, to find our family. In fact, Jesus says as his mother and brothers are outside a house trying to get him to come out, he's like, listen, my real family are all those who follow God's ways. This is my family. He says, hallowed be your name. And we don't, hallowed is not a word I use every day or ever. But it has to do with holiness and honor. And that we are called to honor God as the God of all creation. To recognize we're not in control. We can't manipulate things. We can't force things to happen the way we want them to. And the more we try to, the more we fail. But not only is it about honoring God. That when we begin to honor God, it changes us. We honor who we are as individuals, as people. But we learn how to honor others. And it's not just about respect. Respect is something that, is, that may be earned, but honor is something that is given. We recognize the glimpse, 
the little bit of light in all of us as those created in the image of God. And we honor that in one another. We honor that in every human being. And we don't see them for their failures and their disappointments. We don't see them for the things we disagree with or the ways that we believe they're wrong. We see them for the light of God in them. We see them for the potential and the possibility. And we honor and we lift that up. We equip that and encourage that and point that out over and over and over again as a way of nudging them toward the God who loves them and into the community that gives them family. We are those nudging, honoring one another. Honoring God's priorities. Valuing the people around us and stopping those who don't as a way of acting justly. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done. And it's this kind of submission of our own ambition to the priorities of God. It starts in me, but it's got to go from there. It's not about just me doing the will of God or what I think is the will of God. But it's about me stopping the efforts to build my own kingdom, my own platform, my own achievements and accomplishments and identity and building up who I think I am. Instead, it's a submission to the kingdom of God and the priorities of God and the will of God in me. It's not about what I want or what I even think is the right thing to do, whether I agree with what Jesus asks of me or not. It doesn't matter whether I agree with loving my enemy or not. It's not about me or my kingdom. It's about his kingdom and the will of God. It's not about whether I think I should turn the other cheek or not. It's not about whether I think I should love sacrificially. It's not about whether I think I should give to the work of the kingdom or not. It's not about whether or not I think it's my money or his money. It's about what Jesus teaches. It's about what he says. It's about his kingdom. And that becomes the priority of our lives. And not only that, it then has to spill out. The will of God for the world. The common good. Lifting up. Those who are outcast, those who are marginalized, those who have been written off, those that we deem unfaithful, undeserving, those we would rather not do anything about, is seeking their good, lifting them up, together raising the tide so that all ships go up. This is the will of God and the kingdom of God. It's submitting my will, my ideas, my beliefs to the teachings of God instead of trying to make them fit what I think is okay, what I think is outdated or wrong. It's crazy. Let me give you one that has really kind of transformed in our world today and and just is in the church everywhere. Sexual ethics. The Bible teaches especially in the New Testament, this value of humanity and the intimacy of sexual relationships and the, the, the only place that is strong enough to contain that intimacy and relationship is a marriage. And we kind of write it off as, well, that's outdated and that's wrong and that's not really good for us and that's not really good for marriage and all these other things. It's okay to do what I want. But let's talk about practice. Let's not even go Bible. There was a researcher who studied 83 civilizations in the world over history. 
and studied the relationship of societal flourishing, architecture, art, design, education, and connected that to the sexual ethics of that community. And he found something. He found something. That those with the strictest sexual ethics, those who as a society prohibited and, and, and didn't live with, with sex outside of marriage, either before marriage or during marriage, had that exclusivity of sex and marriage, were the societies that flourished the most. And if a society, and only three in history have ever done this, maintained that ethic for three generations, they are the three societies that contributed most to the world. And it takes about three generations or a hundred years from the time that a society abandons that ethic until it is essentially a dead society failing to contribute to the world in any significant way. The United States is in the second generation, contributing far less to the world than in those areas, falling behind in education, art, architecture. And we look and we're like, God's ways are outdated and irrelevant. You can believe that and be wrong. Because the spirituality, the misfit spirituality of of Christians is this submission of my ideas and my will and my kingdom and my beliefs to Jesus and his kingdom and his will. That's just a small example You'll hear more about that later another day. We're told, in fact, not to worry. Not to be in this pursuit of success and happiness at all things. Because it's not what we eat or drink or wear. Pagans run after these things, Jesus said. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and he'll take care of all of that. It'll be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That's in Matthew 6 again, verses 13 and 14. And this is, it pushes us even further. He says, okay, God, give us our daily bread. You know what I want? I want like yearly bread, monthly bread. Like, give me decade bread, God. Like, I want to know I'm secure and safe for the next decade. I don't want daily bread. I don't have to trust you too much. I have to trust and obey with daily bread. I have to trust you and do the things that you asked me to do and follow through and believe that you'll provide what I need mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically each day to do what you've given me to do that day. It means learning to walk within the rhythms of rest and work and play and connection. Choosing faith over fear and worry. Finding that moment, that place where enough is enough. Enough is enough. I really have a, a great deal of respect for, for Mark Batterson. He's a pastor and writer and speaker who's, who started out as a church planter with a couple dozen people. And now, in all of this, makes just a ton of money. But years ago, he kind of set this number and said, this is enough. This is enough. Anything we ever make over this dollar amount, we'll give away. This is enough. And I've wondered, what would that number be in our family, in our home, and how does it change over time? But like, enough is enough. 
we realize we don't need it all. That there is the possibility of too much. Wealth has this ability to distort us. To keep us from stopping and resting and being who we are created to be. It pulls us out of rhythms of trust in God. That's why we hear the beginning of this, blessed are the poor. They know how to trust God. He keeps going in this idea of trust and he says, forgive us our debts, forgive us our transgressions as we forgive those who trespass against us. I never really liked that part because we're saying to God, forgive me as long as I'm forgiving others. If I stop forgiving others, then you can stop forgiving me. I don't like that. I would rather him just forgive me. But as misfits in creation, we are those who give and receive forgiveness. Give and receive forgiveness. Recognizing that the failure to forgive gets us locked in anger and bitterness and brokenness until it owns us. When we fail to forgive, it locks us up emotionally, keeps us from being able to grow as people. And finally, it locks us out of relationship, of reconciliation. It locks us out of God's forgiveness. Right after he taught us to pray, he says these words in six, Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you. And the truth is, when we fail to forgive, we fail to accept forgiveness. And it's as much that as Him not forgiving. We just don't want it. We just block ourselves out of all of it. But He calls us to be those who forgive quickly. Not forget doesn't mean that relationships don't change. Forgiveness is a willingness to handle, to let God handle the offense, to let God handle the punishment, to let God be the judge of that other person, to release them to God, not believing that, well, they're not getting what they deserve. I've got to hold on to this and make sure that one day they pay, one day they feel the way they made me feel. Instead, it's this, God, I'm going to trust you with this. I don't understand it, and I don't like it, and it's not right. But I can't fix it or control it or make it different, and so I give it to you. And sometimes that takes practice. There are some things that we have to forgive over and over and over and over and over again until it sticks. And that's not easy, but it's who we are. It makes us misfits in the world. And finally, he wraps up. This lead me not into temptation and deliver me from evil. It's this commitment to follow God, to follow Jesus as our leader, to go where he goes in total surrender. Over and over again, Jesus says, come follow me. Be as I am. Do as I do. Speak as I speak. And in Matthew 10, 38, he says, whoever doesn't take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You see, our faith is not compartmentalized. It's not about beliefs. It's total surrender. We're all in with Jesus. Wherever you go, whatever you ask, whenever you ask it, I'm with you, Jesus. It's almost like Peter 
When all these people were abandoning Jesus, he looks to his disciples and says, are you going to abandon me too? Peter's like, well, where are we going to go? You're the only one who offers us life. We heard it earlier. It's not easier. It's better. It's hope. It's joy. It's life. It is the pattern we were created to live. And yeah, we'll be misfits. But at the core, our spirituality is what God has always been inviting us to be and do. To act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with him. To love God, to love others the way that Christ has loved us. It's so simple. It's not easy. And it's so backwards to this pattern of the world. Loving God and walking humbly with him. (coughs) Loving mercy and acting justly. And letting that determine everything we do. It's so backwards. So much better. It sets us free. Let's pray. Maybe as we're, as we're in this moment, you want to take just a, a second and ask God a question. God, in what ways am I a misfit in the world Or have I done what Paul has warned, that I became so comfortable in the culture around me that I fit in without even realizing it? Maybe ask God, have I been missing the point? Have I lost you in the stuff I've been doing for you? Have I made it about me and what I believe instead of loving you and loving people? Have I lost my humility, my connection, my character? God, what would you have me do? And as you sense him speaking or giving you direction or maybe just that feeling of what he's saying... Ask him for the courage to do it. Be reminded that the people in this room, the people who are a part of Hydra, they are that support there to help you be who you were created to be, to do what he's asking you to do. You can lean on them. Talk with them. This is a place where it's okay to be vulnerable and Share the ways we miss it. And ask for that help and encouragement. Father, would you speak to us and invite us back into a deeper connection with you? That as we go into this new year, we would find and prioritize that connection with you, that love for you that pours us out in love for others. That you would be all in all to us. And that we would learn to pray daily, your kingdom come, your will be done. We would learn to call you our Father. We would learn to submit our kingdom and our will to yours. To trust you daily, to forgive, and to follow you where you would take us. We lean in, God, and ask for your help. We know we can't live by even these words on our own, but by your Spirit in us and the very Spirit you promised. So we lean in and we ask for forgiveness because we fail, we sin. We hurt ourselves and others. 
Forgive us, God. Make us new. And as new creations, may we live according to your patterns, your way. It's misfits in this world, inviting others into that journey. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's a joy to worship with you. I hope you'll join me next week. We'll talk about um, some motivations from Scripture for physical care in ways that you probably never really thought about it. So I look forward to being with you next week. Have a great week. Enjoy a homemade cookie on your way out, and we'll see you soon.